What's up, everybody, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Angle On podcast. I'm one of your hosts, John Paul Kilcrease. Joining me is my good friend and co-host, Kenny Montano. How's it going, John Paul? Oh, so good, so good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Wonderful, wonderful. I figured we'd, since this is the first episode, yeah. we should probably jump in and start with maybe explaining a little bit about the kind of the vision behind the show. The millions of people listening are going to want to know that. They're waiting with bated breath. Yeah, I know. Just to, just to find out. I think the main idea behind this podcast is is being able to take a look at a collection of related films, particularly a lot of the same director yeah. or maybe writer or, or something in the creative team. It can be anything that we kind of use to link various movies together, right? Exactly. So it kind of gives us the freedom to kind of do whatever we want, but at the same time have an organizing theme to each yeah. episode. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the idea. And and just kind of look at how they're connected, the different themes and stylistic things and, and just what we can learn and draw from those that series of films. Yeah, movies are always in dialogue with each other. And this will be interesting because as we kind of talk about with our own backgrounds, not only are we different ages, we're, you know, I'm slightly older, although I'm not like way older, but I'm slightly <laughs> older than you, right? I'm in my late 30s, that's hard to say. <laughs> and you're in your 20s. Are you still you're in your early 20s? Early 20s. Technically. I'm a so, baby. So I've seen a lot more movies than you have and the way movies interact actually can mean a lot, right? Yeah. When you first saw a movie, what age you were, what other movies of a similar genre or a trope or something you saw first. So a movie that maybe I might see now and feel is a little bit worn out or samey. Yeah. If you haven't seen the other 10 movies that I saw before that, well, that's going to affect the way that you view them. So it'll be, I think it'll be really interesting going through directors' filmographies, going through different genres, going through different things, um, as well as talking about stuff that we watch throughout the week. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and with that, uh, jumping into a little bit of our backgrounds, I think, with film. Uh, I mean, as you said, I'm, I'm in my early 20s here. And I really didn't... I mean, I, I watched movies growing up, all that good stuff. Like, I think most people did. But I, I didn't really get into, like, I guess I would say paying attention to films until yeah. my very late teens, mm -hmm. I would say, and especially even just the last two or three years, I've actually started to dive in and just have a desire to to understand film as an art form better, yeah. how it's evolved, where it's going, all that stuff. Yeah, exploring themes, and we've had lots of great conversations, you know, not on podcast forum, which is yeah. why it's great, because we have these conversations anyway, we might as well record them, and if anybody else wants to listen to them, they can do that. Right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, of course, I've watched movies since you know i was little growing up and you your taste change and that sort of thing but it was in high school you know i was a blockbuster video nerd so yeah. i would go and while everybody else was in the new release section i was always looking through the back catalogs and i remember first like looking at all the classic movies i remember being obsessed with watching all the movies that came on two vhs tapes Ooh. all the long movies like why are they so long why do they need to be that long <laughs> Some of them don't need to be, but <laughs> but uh, so I remember just plowing through those, plowing through you know directors' filmographies that I could find at my local blockbuster, and um, of course the internet now has made that so much easier <laughs> to be able to find stuff. And in college, watched a lot. And actually, when I was in college, I was uh, a freelance uh, movie critic for my hometown newspaper. So from college, and I wasn't even in my hometown anymore, but I wrote for them. Yeah. And so I got to go to press screenings and all this kinds of stuff. And we wrote a weekly column for our local entertainment section of the newspaper with a, um, a weekly movie review. And so that really got me thinking about that, got obsessed with reading reviews yeah, and reading what criticism had to say about movies and how that could affect the way I approached watching them. And so, you know, it started out with like guys like Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel, 
and, and moved on from there to you know to other other people now. And there's a great online film criticism community out there, both uh, professionals and amateurs listen to film podcasts and have done deep dives into classic films and foreign cinema. And, you know, there's, there's too many movies. So that's true. There's tons of blind spots that we're all going to have, but that should be fun exploration as we move forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, well now that we've kind of jumped through some of some of the basic intros and stuff, kind of explained it a little bit of the structure of the show, at least to start with. And uh-huh. I imagine, you know, things can change. Absolutely. Absolutely. But kind of to begin, I think, We'll kind of start with just whatever movies we've been watching over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and, and just just kind of a general, just just whatever we've been feeling and, yeah. and seeing and stuff. Uh, after that, moving towards the main topic of the episode, mm-hmm. which this week uh, we, we've watched through the films of Bong Joon-ho, yeah. the director most recently well-known for Parasite from South Korea. For sure. Uh, and kind of that, that kind of two-part structure, I think, is what we're going to take it, to start with. So uh, with that, Kenny... What have you been watching lately? Well, I've been watching a lot of things. Some of that we're going to save because I'm sure we both watched a lot of Sundance movies. But yes. that's probably going to be its own episode maybe so, on yeah. its own or things like that. So I watched a lot of that. And so I thought I would talk about some of the Netflix stuff that I've been watching lately. Yeah. The first thing I want to talk about is Spycraft, uh, which is this new series on Netflix. It's kind of a basically a docu- documentary series on um, spy technology. Oh. It's pretty interesting if you're into spies. Yeah. And especially... Of the spy stuff that you see in movies all the time with mm-hmm. regard to, you know, poisons and uh, listening devices and bugs. The first episode is, in fact, on bugs, and then there's ones on poisons and all the different spy paraphernalia that's used. And they talk about both the pop culture references that um, sometimes have informed but also have come from actual spycraft. Oh. So it's not about sp- individual spies, although there are ones that are mentioned, but it's about the craft of being a spy and the technology around being a spy. So all the little gadgets that James Bond would get, well, what are the real things that they've actually found? And there's some crazy stuff that people have actually found. Uh, early, like, essentially RFID, like before that was a thing, versions of bugs, where they had to beam radio waves at a building, and then there would be a non-powered uh, listening device that they had to beam enough energy at to be able to receive a signal back um, and done in like the 60s and 70s. Really interesting stuff. And they talk about actual cases, declassified information that's come out, operations that have gone on, and a lot between the Soviets and the United States, obviously, sure. especially during the Cold War. But if you're interested in spy stuff, especially if you, I love spy movies and those types of things. Spycraft on Netflix is a pretty interesting, um, I think it's like eight or 10 episodes, little uh, documentary series on, um, and then they talk with former CIA agents and stuff, historians, the CIA museum and different people that have been involved in these types of things. So really interesting, well-made, fun little documentary. So that's like a little series. And then I watched three movies that are, are all similar in their differences. Okay. Right? <laughs> and they're similar in that they're all, kind of harkening back to kind of 80s early 90s movies aimed at you know teens preteens so the type of movies that i would have loved back then even though a couple of them would be very inappropriate for young people (laughs) to watch probably so the first one is finding ohana which is probably the the my least favorite of the three but it's not bad it's okay movie it's trying to be the goonies in hawaii is essentially what it's kind of 
the the feel of it, right? It's not as good as the Goonies. Have you seen the Goonies? I have seen the Goonies. Okay, so yes. you've seen the Goonies, right? So it's not as fun as the Goonies. It's not as inventive and creative as the Goonies. It's not as well made as the Goonies, but it's fun. It's a fun adventure film. Kids getting together, trying to find a treasure to save the family sort of thing. And um, that's what it's about, set in Hawaii. So kind of a fun, you know, throwaway. Kids will probably like it sort of thing. Yeah. The other three movies, which is really two, because one I saw a few years ago when it first came out, um, but they they go together, are all directed by the same director. It's someone that I know you have watched, and that's McG. Ah, yes. Right? And I'm not the biggest McG fan. I know you're a big fan of the first Charlie's Angels movie. We've I, talked about this. I actually do really like you it. You like yeah. it more, more than probably most people, though it's a fun movie, right? For sure. And he's made some other movies that have been very hit and miss with me. I've never loved it. I think he made the worst Terminator movie maybe of all of them. Oof. Terminator Salvation is pretty bad. But he has this, he must have a contract, his company, with uh, Netflix, because there's three movies of his that are on Netflix. The first is called Rim of the World. Uh, that came out, I think, either last year or two years ago, maybe 2019. And it is ostensibly a camp movie, right? Kids going to camp. And you have your the tropes of you have the kind of nerdy kid who doesn't want to go to camp. He's not athletic, but he's gonna. his mom's making him go, and so he's going to camp. And he has some trauma that you find out in the course of the movie that makes him afraid. And so it's about overcoming fear. You know, that's a common trope in some of these movies. Then you have the rich kid whose parents own the Mercedes dealership and he's, you know, full of himself, thinks he's a ladies man. And so he's going to camp. And then you have this uh, girl who's from China. She smuggled herself into the United States in a strange sort of way uh, through the airport to go to this camp. You don't know why she's there. She doesn't really talk to anybody. And then you they, they meet another kid who doesn't actually go to the camp, but they meet another kid who's kind of on the run from the law kind of kid. Right. And so they team up and it's about, it's about camp, right? So the first 15 or 20 minutes of this movie is about camp. But then there's also, it's an alien invasion movie, a la, you know, something along the lines of Independence Day. Okay. So there's an alien threat that's come down, and they're going to try to destroy the world. And these kids are going to save everything, right? Of course, that's kind of what's happening. And it's also, got, it's influenced by all those kind of sci-fi movies. It's influenced certainly by a lot of Jurassic, they're complete Jurassic Park shot ripoffs. Really? Homages that I think are very intentional yeah. in the film. Um, where they're on the run from aliens and not dinosaurs in this case. But what McGee does in these movies, I think these are my favorite McGee movies, these three movies, because in all these movies, he is able to have this sense of super fun. I mean, they're ridiculous movies, right? Yeah. They're ridiculous. And yet they're fun, but they're also dangerous. Like people die in these movies. People die in Rim of the World. There's real stakes at, at the end of the day. And yet these kids save the the, you know, Spoiler alert, they saved the world, right? Yeah. You probably assume they didn't all die in the movie. Um, <laughs> um, but people do die, and there's real danger. But it's also, they're sweet, almost to the point of being hokey. Yeah. But I think most of the time, it finds a way to not quite go there. And it's about overcoming your fears. It's about friendship. It's about teamwork. All these kind of things that those types of movies engender. And so there's some really fun set pieces, really fun action they're very funny. Again, I wish they weren't quite so crude because I think younger kids could watch them. Absolutely. This is definitely like PG-13 plus uh, territory. Probably not wouldn't be considered R-rated, but probably definitely would be PG-13. So it's for older teens. There's some crude and sexual innuendo and kind of stuff like that. So it keeps me from recommending it to younger kids, even though. But this is the type of movie that if I saw when I was like 12, 13, 14, 15 years old on HBO or something or on TV or in the movies when I was a kid. I would have just, it would have been one of my favorite movies. It just reminds me of that. So it kind of has those E.T. Goonies vibes to it. And then the other two movies by McG are the Babysitter series. So there's the Babysitter, which came out several years ago. And then the sequel, 
which is the Babysitter Killer Queen that just came out last year. And I loved the Babysitter when it came out and uh, hadn't gotten a chance to catch up with Killer Queen. And so did that. And they're both fantastic. Really? Um, It's about this kid. The first one is about a young boy who thinks he's too old to have a babysitter. Again, the classic kind of family movie, teen movie trope, right? Yeah. But she comes over and she's hot. And so he's like, okay, I guess it could be worse things in the world than to be, <laughs> you know, playing games with a hot babysitter all night, right? Yeah. And, and of course, she's ridiculously hot. It's ridiculous, right? For sure. And then she, you find out she's in a blood cult. And oh. uh, they're going to try to sacrifice him because he's a virgin to the to the blood cult gods or whatever. And it becomes a horror movie. Wow. It becomes a horror <laughs> slasher movie that's ridiculous and gory. But not not gory in a saw or like a, none of it's really scary. It's fun gore, right? It's I, yes. heads exploding and okay. that kind of thing. So it owes homages to Evil Dead and things like that. Yeah. And so that movie comes out and then the Babysitter Killer Queen is we follow this kid years later when he's a high schooler and there's more of this story. And it's the same sort of thing. Uh, this time he's being haunted by the same, the after effects of the first movie. I don't want to give anything away story-wise. But again, very fun, genuinely funny. Uh, whoever is writing these scripts along with McGee is doing a good job because they're genuinely funny. They genuinely have <laughs> like violence, surprises, interesting set pieces. Um, but th- I, they caused me to laugh out loud and... I super enjoyed the the ride of all these things. So I would recommend, if you're into those types of movies, the Babysitter's series and uh, Rim of the World, all three from Mick G. They're my favorite Mick G films. And um, I don't think I would have had a favorite Mick G film <laughs> prior to this, uh, but those definitely, those three would be. Wonderful. So, That's wonderful. What have you been watching? Yeah. Um, so I've been kind of running back through some stuff. Uh, well, one, one of these movies is a rewatch, but uh-huh. tr- just trying to catch up on some movies I haven't seen. Uh, started with Napoleon Dynamite. Gosh. I have net. I had until I watched this last week. Yeah. I'd never seen Napoleon Dynamite before. And Any, anything by Jared Hesch? I've That's, actually not seen anything okay. from him. So I hadn't seen uh, Nacho Libre, Gentleman Broncos, any None of that stuff. Okay. Again, obviously this is a movie I've heard many, many things about. It's a classic now, right? It, it's uh, arguably defined and uh, at least influenced a lot of American films of the similar ilk. And yeah. th- this was a movie after watching it. I was like, I really appreciate this. Yeah. I am 17 years too late to, to like get all of it. Yeah. But I recognize the influences that this film had. Yeah. I mean, just such dry humor and yeah. characters, but fully committed to the tone that it's going for. Mm-hmm. Just painfully awkward <laughs> in, in really wonderful ways and also really, really painful ways yeah. at the same time. And again, I love a lot of films that were inspired by this, and I really appreciated it, even if for a 22-year-old in 2021, yeah. it, it didn't do as much for me, maybe emotionally, or, or hit me in as much of a funny way as I think it did back in the day. And you, you, I assume, saw this movie at least relatively close to when it came out. I think I saw it in the theaters. Okay. And I remember liking it. I really haven't gone back and watched it a whole... I've watched clips of it, because there's tons of clips and stuff on YouTube. I remember being a little bit more mixed on it okay. than a lot of people where I had friends that were like obsessed with it. Yeah. I remember finding it funny, but not much more than that. Just kind of like a, yeah, funny. I didn't get the kind of cult status that it's, yeah. I, I like other Jared Hess movies like Nacho Libre, Gentleman Broncos, I think better. Okay. But, uh, but it's solid and it is, it's a classic, right? As yeah. far as influential and that tone, which I think we're much more familiar with that kind of awkward, independent film tone now yes than yes. we would have been in the early 2000s absolutely absolutely so yeah, that was napoleon dynamite uh next uh so 
I was talking with a friend and we were both uh, mourning the loss of Daft Punk this last week. Yeah. Uh, so we decided to go back and watch one of our childhood favorites, Tron Legacy. Okay. Tron Legacy is not a good movie. Let me start with that. Right. But I absolutely love it. Uh-huh. It is one of the coolest movies sure. I've ever seen. The okay. story, nonsense. None of the characters matter. Mm-hmm. They're boring, cookie cutter. They yeah. don't do anything. But the world that is built in Tron Legacy and just the visual effects, the design of yeah. everything is maximum cool factor to the nth degree. And then obviously the Daft Punk soundtrack. Yeah. One of my favorite movie soundtracks of all time. Yeah, it's a great soundtrack. So maybe and, the best thing about the movie too. Is uh, that soundtrack. Is I think fantastic. hands down. Yep. hundred percent. hundred percent. Otherwise you're just watching weird CGI Jeff Bridges just saying, yeah, man. And it's, yeah, they did the whole young actor thing before Marvel or Star Wars did it, right? And they committed to it. Yeah. And I guess I somebody's got to do it first, right? The decision, it but it look good. doesn't hold up. Have you seen Tron? Have you seen the original Tron? I actually have not outside of some like clips on YouTube. Yeah, you should go. It's not good either. I don't particularly like it either. I think both of the movies are kind of boring yeah. at parts. They have some great action pieces in them and some great visuals, but I think they both suffer in story. Yeah. But they are cool. Yes. And yeah, that soundtrack is it's awesome. wonderful. If you treat it as a visual album, I think it's I think it's almost worth the Would watch. Would have been better probably if they had just let Daft Punk direct it. Honestly, let let the group like do the whole thing. Cuz I then I, I think it probably would have been, yeah, significantly better. And I hope one day we get some sort of I don't I imagine they'll do a reboot at some point where if we if they can get good writers inside that world, I think there's a lot of potential there. Well, especially now that they have the, you know, the Tron ride coming over from Shanghai Disney to so Disney World. Excited eventually whenever that's going to be finished one day uh, down in Florida, but it's definitely, it's got that cool aesthetic. Cause even though that movie wasn't particularly that popular, I don't think it was a big hit. I think it was kind of a flop when it yeah, came think- out, you know, the ride is continued. So there's, you can't deny the, the mood and the aesthetics of that is something that's appealing to people. So absolutely. Joseph Kaczynski, I think is the director that he's another yeah. guy who his movies are very kind of mostly miss for me, yeah. but cool visual. I got he's you. worked a lot with Tom Cruise and some others, but yeah, Tron legacy. I haven't thought about that movie in a while. I, to be honest, I haven't either, but it was, it was a nostalgic rewatch for sure. All right. Finally, I checked out Pleasantville, which I've never seen before. So, uh, my, our, our friend, Brian, really maybe the biggest fan I've met of magic realism in films. Uh, although he admitted that Pleasantville is kind of debated whether it's considered kind of in that subgenre or not. Uh, that said, uh, this was so much fun. It's a fun one. It's such a blast. And I mean, obviously the visuals look phenomenal and it is so impressive what they were able to do in the late Mm nineties with all of that. Cause like, I mean, today you can key stuff out and and get that color mixed with black and white effect pretty easily. But back in the day for them to have to like paint things, they used like green makeup and things on people. And so then they would like reverse the way the colors were being pulled in camera, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's just really impressive. And it's fun. It's charming. I was a little taken aback when about two thirds of the way through the movie, they decided to start tackling racism. And I was like, I don't know yeah. that this is the right movie yeah. to try and do that. And I, it does feel a little shoehorned in, especially in a movie that's basically about white people. Yes. In suburbia. It's like, we're going to deal with racism with yeah. literally only white people. And you're like, maybe you didn't need to go there. Yeah. And I think it, kind of bites off a little more than it can chew in some areas. I'm happy for them to do that, but it does feel a little bit like tacked on. Yes. Which feels like the wrong way to do something about racism. Because something that large of an issue, I think you you have to yeah. do a lot more when, when you're trying to work through it or deal with it. However, your movie When the movie's really more about, you know, society 
taboo, social taboos yes. and these types of things, right? Yeah. And, about and a lot about sexual freedom and those types of absolutely. things that the movie's exploring. It's one of those movies, especially I saw when I was much younger, this was a late 90s movie, right? Yes. And probably didn't even understand all of the fully get all of the uh, the messaging that going on and I don't know that I probably would agree with a lot of the the thematic messaging of the movie but it's a fun movie it's actually pretty emotional toward the end Absolutely. I think Joan Collins is fantastic yes in the movie so and, much uh, so you have a young Reese Witherspoon and Jake Gyllenhaal right uh it or was uh Toby Toby McGuire, McGuire. yes who yeah. uh, I mean anything he does dork wise I think he's fantastic yeah. at I don't know about much outside of that, but when he's a dork, he's in his element. Does he even act anymore? I don't know. I hope not. I don't know. <laughs> also, but yeah, visually just fantastic. Uh, so such a good looking movie. Yeah. Such a good looking movie. And hey, it's good to good to see Don Knotts. So mm-hmm. alrighty. Uh, finally, I think there were a few movies that we had both watched. Yeah. Not necessarily together. No. But we checked out. Uh, Framing Britney Spears. Yeah. This I wanted is to the ask new, what you thought of this. This new documentary. Um, so part, I both, I, I appreciated, you know, these documentary things are interesting, right? They're all the rage right now. Absolutely. This is a huge genre. This one I found quite depressing on multiple levels. Yeah. One, because yes, she was exploited and the way the media jumped on these stories and just made her life a living nightmare for a while. Um, when she was clearly a person who was struggling with fame, was struggling with everything from substance abuse to relationship issues, toxic relationships with her, especially with her family, with her her parents, her dad, I think in particular, right? And so all of that I can appreciate. But I also felt like this is a movie about the exploitation of Britney Spears. And it feels like the movie kind of is exploiting Britney Spears because she's not interviewed. She doesn't seem to have been involved in the project at all. You don't hear from most of the main people in the movie. And there's a little thing at the end saying, you know, these are the people that we asked to be interviewed and they declined. And right. Britney Spears wasn't even on there. So did they even try to get, I think they, I thought they said at the end that they had tried to reach out to her, but her like estate hadn't declined, declined the request. So it's both depressing and that the events happen, but it also feels a little bit like this movie is exploiting her as well. Like exploiting her pain and her trauma for the sake of their little documentary movie kind of feels like the type of thing that if she wasn't going to participate in it, then maybe you probably just don't make this. Do you think though that she had the opportunity to participate in it? So I imagine she doesn't have a whole lot of agency in that area either, yeah, right? What probably interviews? not. And so I just, I, I felt like just the movie itself felt a little exploitative in that way. Um, gotcha. And it's just kind of sad. You know, I just nice. felt kind of sad. I didn't, uh, to say I enjoyed it. I mean, it's, it's well made. It's fine. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it told me anything new that sure. child actors get exploited or child celebrities get exploited sometimes by their parents and by the, the system. Yeah. And it's definitely a, an issue and a problem. But it kind of just made me feel, ugh, yeah. It, it at the end of it was not a, yeah, not a an enjoyable documentary. I would say yeah. it was weird. Uh, my dad is actually from Kentwood, Louisiana, mm. and so when they had like they had drone footage of like the water tower and Main Street, I was like, <laughs> I've literally been there. And they talk about uh, her father's failed gym. My dad's yeah. like, I went to that gym as a child. Oh wow! So he was actually uh, my dad's uh, Sunday school teacher in seventh grade. Wow! So it's wild, weird to like be kind of not, not really connected, but just have that point of connection. You and Brittany are basically BFFs. So I, I mean, effectively. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks, guys. She declined to be interviewed for this podcast we tried so hard (laughs) i also the other this is aside from the documentary itself but what do the free britney people do for a living exactly i don't know i think they're you know we probably shouldn't talk about them too much they'll (laughs) they'll find us and attack us but they have nothing else to do apparently 
Yeah, I mean, there is there is the cult of of personality in support of her, mm-hmm. as well as the cult of personality of those not so much anymore, but back in the day who were, you know, the tabloids and stuff trying to bring her down, trying to destroy her, yeah. and you know, because that's what Hollywood likes to do, you know, or celebrity culture build people up and then tear people down because that's what sells magazines and now it's it's what sells uh you know ad clicks revenue on websites yeah exactly so exactly but it, it, you know it's not bad um no, no. nothing nothing special there i think and just kind of felt sad i feel sorry for her absolutely I feel like she needed she needed good friends I, I, it's clear that <laughs> though her influences around her were just yeah. not yeah. What, who they needed to be yeah it seems like she's in a much better place now i hope so and i hope she's getting royalties that she can live off of and doesn't feel the need to be exploited absolutely next we both saw nomadland this is this just this is such a good film yeah i, love I this. don't exactly know where to start with it but I, i've never seen any chloe zhao i think so, yeah. All right, chloe zhao films before um i know we talked about i believe the writer the writer is her really only major film i think she did some short films before that that i'm not familiar with but yeah the writer uh, was her kind of breakout movie okay and then she has upcoming, she has the uh, Eternals, which from Marvel, which I cannot imagine what a movie directed by this woman in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to look like. But I'm very excited for it. I, I mean, yeah, again, watching this film, I was like, I don't know how those two are at all going to feel, yeah. but I'm definitely interested there. But uh, this film follows uh, Frances McDormand's character, mm-hmm. whose name escapes me, yeah, but it uh, follows her basically as she kind of loses everything i'm gonna say she loses her job loses her house as the the company and the the plant that her and her husband were employed by closes down yeah this town shuts down and she is more or less forced to live on the road fern fern thank you fern and and is forced to pick up the modern day nomad lifestyle yeah which is a thing which i did not realize was a thing there's a whole community of folks that do this which it was one eye-opening and two it was somewhere between heartbreaking and beautiful. I think that's probably a really good way to describe it. It is. You have this. It's very sad what happens to these people where they're forced to live sort of as like wandering nomadic homeless people. Not exactly. I mean, she has a van. and Yeah. But they're, they don't really have a place to call home um, in that sense. And it, it has one of my favorite themes in movies, which is loss of identity. Who is she now? What is her life going to be like? What are these? And but where does she find family and community in the midst of all of this? Right. Yeah. And then what Chloe Zhao does in both this movie and in the writer is she takes real life stories and people and then creates a fictional world in which they can inhabit. But that is very based on and drawn from the lives of real individuals. So in the writer, that movie is about it. I think the, the writer, I think, is my favorite of the two still. But they're both very, very strong. And the writer is about um, you know, a guy who's a rodeo rider who gets injured, breaks his back, and can no longer ride. And he comes to the realization throughout the movie. And it's, who is he now? What is his life like when the thing that he loves the most is taken away? And how does that affect his relationships and reflect his family? And, and who is he now? And he has to fight through that and accept his, his new reality. And a lot of those same themes are here, too. When you lose stuff, how do you accept your new reality? And they use both use a lot of non-actors, people who are real nomads yeah, which, that are in the movie. That was such such a great choice. And mm-hmm. you feel that authenticity, yeah. I think. Yeah, totally. I'm through really well. And Frances McDormand, I mean, <laughs> just give her every award. <laughs> Please. She's just so good. She's funny. 
She's scary. She is terrifying. Like, I, I don't want to be in a room alone with that lady. Yeah. No. <laughs> the actress or Fern. <laughs> um, but she's so good. She's so compelling and utterly watchable. Uh, you see a little bit more of her in this movie than I uh, maybe was prepared for. <laughs> but, yeah. I like uh, Peter Bradshaw, the Guardian, called it a doc, doc, docu-fictional hybrid. Ooh. Filmmaking. I really like that. Docu-fiction. Yeah. Because it is documenting the, live, the right. lifestyle of these people. The people are real. The situations are real. Yeah. Even though those exact situations are fictionalized. Yeah. But the world that she's creating is right. And you really get the sense of the real lived in experience of these people. And that's what so impresses me with McDormand is she's able to come in as a fictional character. And the writer, the lead, is basically playing a version of himself. He's a non-actor. And he's playing a version of his own story that happened that she that inspired her to write that movie. Where here, you know, Francis McDormand is everything as far from a nomad probably as is possible, you know? Um, And yet she's able to inhabit that character and that world and that you feel her connection with them. And you feel like she really is part of this community. And it is um, extremely compassionate film. Her escape, her search for her own identity is just, yeah, it is, it is, it is both sad and, and inspiring and triumphant all at the same time. It's everything you want this type of movie when you watch it to be. And you just hope that they stick it toward the end. They stick the landing that it doesn't end you know, too maudlin that it doesn't become too uh, cheesy or, but, but Chloe Zhao, I think is such a good filmmaker that she never does. It's beautiful to look at in its simplicity, her, the way she frames shots and absolutely beautiful. One of my favorite movies of the year of last year. I don't know what he counted as, but (laughs) whatever that falls into. Yeah. And just towards the end when they, when she's walking outside her house, yeah, you see that, that straight path up Mm -hmm. the mountains and just, yeah. Good stuff. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, speaking of movies that are going to be big Oscar contenders, I think. Sure. Uh, we have Minari. Right now embroiled in uh, Golden Globe controversy because it was ineligible for Best Picture, was only eligible for foreign film. Which doesn't make Foreign language any film because it is an American movie. It, they just speak a lot of Korean in it. They speak a lot of Korean. It is. Wait, so wait, it wasn't eligible for Best Picture? No, because it's technically a foreign film under the Golden Globes. So it, can't, it wasn't eligible to be in Best Picture categories only in foreign language film i'm gonna say categories. i don't think that makes sense because this feels like an american film it's, it's set in arkansas <laughs> like, it is about an american it, and it is a true american story it's about immigrants you know just because they don't speak english the whole time in the movie i don't see why that should disqualify them especially from the hollywood foreign press association <laughs> ought to recognize this yeah uh, but they're also in hot water for not having a single person of color voting for the awards. So, oh, my. Yeah, we'll just so, leave it at that. That's exciting. Uh, those are this weekend as we're recording this. Oh, dang. We'll see how those go. So, uh, What did you think of this film? I really liked it. Um, I don't. I didn't love it, I think. And maybe it was because of I knew it was an awards contender movie and I'd been hearing about it for a while. You know, but uh, but I think it's I think it's very good. I yeah. think it's very good. It's very it's heartwarming. It's funny. It, it's that classic kind of immigrant story about and and if you don't know it's sort of about a korean american family that moves to this little tiny town looking for you know they're trying to pursue the american dream right so they're going to start a farm and the grandmother comes and comes and sort of upsets the apple cart of their lives and then there's health concerns and all this kind of stuff that happens the potential loss of the farm and minari is actually like this vegetable or something that they're planting down by a creek and that's yeah it kind of becomes a a, th- a thematic hinge for the movie. So I thought it was very sweet. I think it's a very sweet movie. The The little kid. Oh my goodness. It's fantastic in little. this movie. It's one of the great kid performances. He just, you know, he's adorable. Can we get, can we get an Oscar nod for little, little Alan Kim? Cause he I was think, perfection. I think there needs to be a category of like 
young performer or something like that? I because agree. every year there seems to be one or two that just stand out. Yeah. And they're not going to be able to compete against, you know, your lead and supporting categories. But yeah, he's fantastic. So good. So um, good. But that, yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was um I thought it was sweet. I thought it was emotional. It hit all the right beats. I heard one person describe it as quietly graceful, and I think that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, I thought it was very beautiful. Yeah. I thought it was really good. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I'm in I'm in concurrence with I think all of that. Again, I've been hearing about this movie since it hit Sundance last year. And yeah, it's great. Maybe not on the same level as some of the other movies from last year, but I, I just think it it's a really, I, I, don't, I don't want to use the word accurate, but I think it's a, just a good portrait of what the American dream to some extent actually looks like. Yeah. And again, it is still a, an idealistic version, I think, still sure. of the American dream, but that life just throws a lot of things at you. And when you're an immigrant coming from another country and your opportunities are so much more limited and you have to choose which ones to take the struggles you face and the, the costs that come mm -hmm. with those. Right. And as we see, and especially the relationship between the husband and wife and but it's also about aging. There's lots of stuff with the grandmother about aging and dealing with aging parents and yeah. dealing with illness, mental illness. And there's lots of themes and yet none of them are hit over the head so that it doesn't become a, it's not a message movie in that not way. There's not like it's, this movie isn't about any one of those things. It's sort of about all of them. Yeah. And it's really just about an American family in the truest sense of that word. They're Korean-American, yes, but they're an American family trying to build a business, trying to build lives, trying to help each other, having difficulties. And there's questions in, about marriage and you know divorce and all these things that come up throughout the movie that are really, I think, patiently uh, explored. And I think if the movie fails anywhere, it's in some of the direction. I didn't feel that the movie, I think the movie lacked some urgency and especially when i saw this very near when i saw nomadland oh. nomadland is so beautiful cinematographically and minari is very simple and it's not trying to do anything like that certainly um but it doesn't look as great as as, as some of the other movies um but yeah i think it's a it's a very sweet in, movie in the best sense you know sometimes sweet can be a negative like it's so sweet that it's like candy sweet sure yeah. but this is sweet in the in the very best way um of exploring all these issues of, uh, as a family and then when you add into that that immigrant experience, I think it uh, it just elevates it one notch. It reminds me of a lot of a movie called In America that if you've never seen, people ought to, ought to watch it. Um, that is also about the immigrant experience. Very different movie, but this it had room feelers for me about that. That was one of my favorite movies. It might have been my favorite movie of the year it came out. Okay, again, early two thousands, I think. Gotcha. That was In America. In America. In America. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I think that does it for uh, most of the movies that we've seen for the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And with that, I think we'll move into our main topic of the show, looking at the films of Bong Joon-ho. Is it Bong Joon-ho or Joon-ho Bong? Because uh, they, they say their name's different. That's a good Korean, point, actually. I think Bong is his last name. Mm. I think Jun Ho is his first name. Mm, I see. Dang. But I don't know what's approach. Do you say it in 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 Korea? Korea, I suppose you would call him Bong Jun Ho. But if you were talking to him, his name is Jun Ho. Interesting. That that would be his first. These are they they put last names first, surnames first. Yeah. And they go there. Interesting. I did not realize that. That actually makes sense, though. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I don't exactly no, know for sure, but I've seen it written both ways. Huh. And it's depending on whether you're writing it the Korean way or the American, the English way. Huh. And so wow. we'll just call him Bong Joon-ho. 
I like it. And we'll probably mostly call him Bong anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, we'll stick with that direction for now. Uh, so for those that don't know, he is a Korean director. I would say currently most well known for his 2019 film Parasite, which swept the at last year's Oscars. It won for Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best International Feature Film, and of course, Best Picture. First ever foreign film to win Best Picture. It did. It did. And I really, I think, did a lot to, not that you haven't had uh, like, like Park Chan-woo, yeah. if I'm saying his name correctly, obviously did a lot to also bring Korean cinema over to the U.S., uh-huh. but I feel like Bong has probably brought it more closer to the mainstream than anyone else has before. Yeah, uh, Wook's films are a little bit less accessible, I think, for most audiences. Uh, hopefully that changes. I think he has some very good movies. But Parasite and you know Snowpiercer and a few yeah. others that Bong Joon-ho has directed have definitely crossed over yeah. in, in a big way. Absolutely, absolutely. And you're right, especially with the couple of English-language films that he's done. Yeah. So with that, uh, we're going to jump into it and kind of go, we did not watch these in release order, but I think yeah. we're going to talk about them in release order. Sounds good. Moving from his work on Barking Dogs Never Bite, which was his first feature film that he ever had the opportunity to direct. He actually, a few weeks ago, did an interview for the Directors Guild of America. Oh, okay. Ryan Johnson was interviewing him. He talked a little bit about Barking Dogs Never Bite. So apparently in Korea... When they have assistant directors, uh-huh. they treat them as apprentices for becoming directors. Okay. So, and I don't remember the films he'd worked on, but he had been an assistant director for a while. He'd been working with this production company. And at some point, the production company was like, hey, we've got like a couple million dollars lying around. Do you want to just go make a movie kind of thing? <laughs> Must be nice. So, and he was like, yeah, here's my pitch. And they're like, yeah, that's not expensive. You can go kill dogs or whatever. I mean, he didn't kill dogs, but the, right. the film's about killing dogs. And they're like, sure. Set mostly in an apartment building. Yeah. And so, and that he got the, the opportunity to direct. And wow. so, yeah, let's just jump into the film. What did you think of his directorial debut? So Barking Dogs Never Bite is uh, about this guy who is a college uh, teacher, professor kind of guy, and lives in an apartment building and is annoyed by the sound of his neighbor's dog, right? And so he wants to get rid of this dog. And that incites the movie. And it's essentially, it's a comedy. It's, it's yeah. the most broadly comedic of his movies. For sure. Although I think even here you see that the dark comedy, the black com- comedic nature of the film and the tonal shifts in the movie are something that are, is going to, that we could talk about probably on every single movie. Yeah. And I think this is fun. It's such a good time. I think it's fun. It, it, and it, if I understood more, there is a culture of eating dogs apparently in Korea, at least historically, apparently, as I was kind of doing some research that he is kind of commenting on okay. because there is eating of dogs in this movie just to warn you yeah. trigger warning for those of you uh, you know of course not not for real but of course uh, in the context of the movie um but there is there's like slapstick humor and stuff that yeah he's going to continue on in his career so it's a really interesting especially i actually think it's better that i saw this movie uh later because as a film it's not as polished it's it's not it doesn't look as great because of just the sets that he's working with and the limited budget that he's working with but having seen his other movies, you go back here and you see this is the DNA of Bong Joon-ho. Absolutely. He knew exactly who he was as a filmmaker and as a writer from the very beginning. This is a much simpler movie. It's a much more straightly comedic movie. And yet um, it totally works. It's funny, uh, like really funny and disturbing at points oh, where you're man. just like, oh, you have those moments where your just jaw hits the, the floor and saying, 
I can't believe this is what's happening in this movie. Absolutely. So I, but I, I think it's really great. I think it's really fun. Um, first step into Wong Joon-ho. I totally agree. I totally agree. And yeah, I don't know that I'd recommend anyone start here. No, probably not. But especially, you're right, having watched, because I'd watched a couple of his movies before jumping onto this one. And yeah, you can see all of the tenets of his filmmaking at least hinted at here. And yeah. uh, there's just confidence. And again, it's rough around the edges, but you still get a feeling for his style and you still see his competence and confidence. Creativity. What he's doing. And just it, the movie's goofy, like genuinely it is goofy, goofy in parts. Yeah. And it's while also being incredibly dark and serious in places. Again, I, you're right. We could say that about pretty much every film on this yeah. list. Yeah. But uh, he definitely has a style. Yes. Yes. And uh, this is just so much fun. I just still when when he kills the dog right off the bat and then 20 minutes later he hears the dog barking again just I lost it so so freaking funny yeah <laughs> like oh no and uh, so yeah spoiler alerts for all these movies right yes, that we're gonna talk yes. about we're not we're gonna assume you have seen anything we talk about I mean we're not gonna try to give away everything in a movie sure we're sure. not gonna worry about spoilers on on these things yeah we're we're gonna assume so that go watch them first you've had two years to and then listen check all these out and I think pretty much all these are on streaming so. Yeah. So that was from 2000, right? The year 2000. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we don't know exactly what the budget was. It made like very no small. money yeah. at the box office. You could tell it's a very small budget movie. Yeah. Probably, probably he, a couple million. Maybe. He said by the time, uh, he said it took about a year for the home release for any critics to watch it. Oh, wow. Uh, he said the critics in Korea did tell him that they liked it. But he said by that point, I was already working on Memories of Murder, so I didn't care. Yeah. But yeah, they apparently they liked it enough that they're like, well, here's more money. So that leads us into his second film, which... I can't believe this is the second film. Like I'm like, <laughs> you were lying in here somewhere. Uh, 2003. 2003's Memories of Murder. Which we got to see at a screening. We did. We got to see this in a theater. And holy cow. Yeah, this is my favorite of his movies. It, like, incredible. In, yeah. every, in every sense. This... Like, this is up there with some of my... With, some of my favorite movies. I Just the way everything in this movie is blended. The story and just the the style in this film, the way, even just the way that Bong moves the camera in this movie yeah. is perfect. So Memories of Murder is about, basically set in this small uh, Korean town outside of Seoul. You get the sense that Seoul is not too far away, but yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a distance, right? And it's set in the 80s, and it's sort of it's based on true events sort of the the actual like the serial killer was real this was there was a real serial killer in the outskirts of seoul yeah uh killing people killing women and that's sort of what the movie's about it's basic kind of. plot it's about these detectives who are trying these two detectives in particular who are trying to solve this case of these young women being found raped and murdered and they're trying to find the serial killer. Yeah. And so on one level, it's a serial killer movie, right? It shares DNA with Zodiac. It shares DNA with some other, you know, serial killer movies, the Han you know, the Hannibal Lecter movies or whatever. And yet, it is in his hands, it becomes so much more than simply that. Because it is that. There are all the things that you would expect. They track down suspects. They look for clues. Um, there are misunderstandings and red herrings. And it's a mystery, right? And it's dark visually. Right, it's, a lot of it happens at night, and it is disturbing, violent. The stuff that happens, both the things that are implied have happened, and then there is some violence that actually happens on screen. And yet, it is also very funny, disturbingly funny. So, so and both in its dialogue and it is, and it gets goofy. Genuinely, there is like 
slapstick humor again. There's a, there are fart jokes in a serial killer movie, and that they're actually funny. They work somehow. Yeah, and and the tonal shifts, like how easily this movie could have been just a kind of standard serial killer procedural detective movie, right? It could have been that, and yet what he's doing here is so complex, and he's walk, walking this kind of razor's edge of being too goofy in places, to where we might lose sympathy with our lead detectives because of their behavior. And yet he's able to shift back and forth within like minutes of each other in scenes, moments, even uh, switching tones. And he does it effortlessly and it is beautiful. It is haunting. It is sad. It is funny. It is all those things. It is just, you know, it's one of those movies that just has a little bit of everything in it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know you loved it. uh, Yeah. Just, I could not get enough of this movie. I mean, they're just, just some, just so many things in the film that, just stick with you whether they're funny and just are, are absolutely hilarious. And then again, you're right. The next moment you like just most violent or disturbing things are happening, but it works and it does not, it, it, it doesn't disrespect those things at the same yeah. time. I mean, there's, there's just so much that's on there. And I love that so much of the movie is so gray and muted and everything. And then obviously juxtaposed against you have all of the, the, Female victims are are usually wearing red, yeah, very bright, kind of kind of juxtaposed against that. And then at the end, and we actually as part of the screening, I believe it was uh, Edgar Wright did an interview at the end with Bong Joon Ho, and he talked yeah. about at the very end of the movie, you see Song Kang Ho, which actually I believe this is the first Song Kang Ho, their first collaboration, which is yeah. just dynamite. He's wonderful. I don't know how yeah, that his man performance is fantastic. Has not won an Oscar. He's great. Uh, he looks directly into the camera for the final lines of the movie yeah. and Bong talked about kind of his desire that maybe if the serial killer was still out there because at the time of release in 2003, this was still an unsolved. These were unsolved crimes. Yeah. Now they've since been solved. The guy was actually in prison for something else. Yeah. And DNA and stuff later on have since helped between 2003 when the movie came out and when we saw it now in uh, t- 2020, they solved the case. Yeah. And, yeah, it was interesting. He did not want the killer, who he presumed was still active and, or at least out in the world, if he saw the movie, to feel like he had gotten away with it. Yeah. And so the looking straight into the camera is like, we're looking at you. We know you're, you know, you're a, a horrible human excuse for a human being. And do not take this as us uh, lauding your superior efforts to evade the police. Absolutely. And uh, also just the, the commentary, too, on the, the state of law enforcement in South Korea, which, again, is not, is not something that I'm abundantly familiar with. Yeah. But one, their lack of technology, which we see, you know, they have to send evidence off to America, uh-huh. things like that to get tested. And also the this is a theme they bring up, too, in Mother, but just police corruption as well. Yeah. seems that as though it's more, at least at the time, was more prevalent <laughs> in South Korea, at least in its portrayal of media than and their lack of caring about things that don't happen in the city. Yes. Like if this was a serial killer in Seoul, you get the sense that they would have been on it, that they would have used every resource that they can. But because it happens out in the sticks, it seems like the government isn't that worried. They're worried more about these protests and things that are going. It's interesting, a lot of parallels to, you know, um, especially how even in America sometimes coverage and, uh, you know, public attention to a case can be dramatically different if it's um, if the victim is white or a minority, 
and and hopefully that some of that is changing, but about how government and social a- apathy towards certain types of crimes can mean resources aren't allocated. And so you have two bumbling detectives who don't really know what they're doing. No. Although the guy, our, our main characters, does have some kind of instinct of finding them, and and they do the best that they can, and yet they're kind of bumbling in that way. They, they, they're kind of feeling their way through, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was Memories of Murder. And moving on from this, Bong kind of takes a big genre shift for his next film. <laughs> Just a bit. He goes, all right, I did what's largely a comedy. And then I did yeah. what's a pretty serious but still funny yeah. serial, serial killer. killer detective movie. Yeah. Obviously, next logical step, monster movie. Yeah. As you do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that's, I mean, I think that was going to be Fincher's next film after he did, uh, after he did Zodiac. But uh, yeah. what, what did you think of this one? This was, uh, I believe, 2006. Yeah. So the host is, it's a monster movie um, about a giant monster coming out of the river and attacking people. And it follows primarily one family and this guy whose daughter gets taken and you follow her as she tries to survive. And you follow this family as they try to find the daughter. It's a dad and a grandfather yeah. and, and s- aunt? sister, aunt, yeah. Several of them yeah. that end up in this together trying to find her. Uh, I really like this. I think this is super fun Absolutely. for the most part. <laughs> there are right? a couple of places. Uh, it's a little rough special effects wise, but again, this is probably, you know, this is on an $11 million budget in Korea. And so for what they had, and it's full on, you know, big giant, yeah. slug monster out in the in daylight in daylight i was gonna say yeah they they definitely committed yeah to everything that they wanted to do with it Absolutely. and so some of the, the special effects are a little bit rough especially yeah. you know this was 2007 so you know they had some technology obviously but again with only 11 million dollars only so much uh, you can do. you can imagine how this movie would have looked if he was making it now um I think it would look a lot better. So Absolutely. It's just limitation on budget. So I don't fault the, the movie for that. It, even though at times it does take you out of it a little bit. It just seems very CGE. For sure. But um, the essential story of the movie, I think, is a lot of fun. It's a little long, I feel like. As some of the set pieces go on a little bit long, and we can talk about the ending a little bit. The ending did not work for me. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I think this is a very crazy, fun monster movie. Again, tonal shifts between scary and funny. Um, I think the movie is let down by the fact that our kind of central character, I don't particularly like him as a dad and the way that the movie tries to invest us in the ending and what happens in the end, I felt kind of perfunctory and a little bit, uh, I felt it, um, again, almost exploiting the situation that happens at the end, as opposed to making me feel emotionally connected to him. So but that being said, I think most of the action and stuff in this movie is really well done. I think there's some really interesting stuff here. And um, my favorite character is his daughter and the way she's seeking to survive and actually trying to save another young boy that becomes a part of the story. Um, her intelligence, the intelligence of the creature. and But again, it's about government corruption. It's about U.S. involvement in Korean oh. politics and military, U.S. military. I mean, that's how the movie starts, essentially. Yeah. Um, the U.S. U.S. poisons uh, the the river, and that's why this creature grows. Essentially, is, is so it's criticizing U.S. political involvement in Korea, and it's again some of that politics stuff is stuff that we're just distanced from. Absolutely, but I'm sure is much more impactful for them. What did you think of it? Yeah, um, yeah, I definitely I think I agree with a lot of that. I, I liked this movie. I think it's got some really fantastic moments. I think this is 
character-wise, one of Bong's weakest films. Yeah. Uh, I just I don't care about most of the people in this movie, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the grandfather. And I, I really do like the little girl. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, Song Kang-ho's character is just... I don't know. There's just... And Bong, I think, works with a lot of weak male characters yeah. in a lot of his films. But there's just something about him where you're like, I'm barely rooting for you right now. He's very similar to his character in Memories of Murder, right? He's kind of a drunk, um, loser kind of guy, right? Yeah. And yet there you're with him because you sense a real sense. And, and they're trying to do the same sort of thing. I mean, we, yes, I get it. He cares about his daughter. He does love her. But boy, he doesn't, he doesn't show that, it. Though. Like that's, I think that's the issue. Like they he, want us to believe that, but yeah. we never see that at the beginning. I, I, you don't, I just don't feel as much like urgency and as much, yeah. I don't know, fear or, or whatever else. I just don't feel that communicated. So that really well. hurts the ending. Absolutely. Because we don't have an emotional connection with him. And, and so with the events of the, of the very end of the movie, I just felt very cold toward, uh, toward him. And, um, but yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, though, again, I think there's a lot of great stuff in here. I love the U.S. military just rolling in and just screwing everything up. <laughs> it's funny, funny and also accurate. Uh, yeah. I mean, when they get through and they're, you basically find out that a lot of the virus stuff is kind of fake mm-hmm. and not real. And, and they, they leave a lot of that kind of open, I think. But yeah. just just the way that. That they handle that, I, I just think is the opening genius. attack scene, though, by the river. That whole scene <laughs> is both hilarious and frightening, and pretty awesome. What a way to establish pretty awesome your just the setup, and then all the stuff where the girl is in his like bunker thing where he's putting all the bodies and everything. The the monster is pretty terrifying. That stuff is so scary and really good. When really like well she's done. like running on the monster to try to like reach the thing and just yeah or like when like the skeletons drop anyway this movie did pretty well quentin tarantino talked a lot about this movie which is i think he helped this movie he brought it over to the united states i think he executive produced the american debut of it and talked about like this is one of his favorite movies i think it was his his favorite movie of the year that he made let people know and so that helped this movie make uh between its korean and american release uh 90 million dollars so it was actually a huge hit um it was his first big hit because memories of murder though i think it's his his best film was a modest hit. Like it, yeah, I think it kind of just barely made enough money. Yeah. I think it was popular in Korea. Yeah. But I think it had a pretty light reception here in the, yeah. The host was his big movie though, that kind of brought him to the attention of American audiences. Yeah. Which is good. And again, I I still think it's a good movie. Uh, Again, you're right. The CG monster in broad daylight is a little rough. I looked up cause I was curious cause I was like, what else was CG stuff at the time? Uh, The other two big movies with, I would say large CG roles were dead man's chest from the parts of the Caribbean okay. and night at the museum. Uh, yeah. Actually including the host, all three of those movies were the same uh, VFX company really called the orphanage. They don't exist anymore, but, but 10 times as much money on those other two. Movies, yeah. Right? Night at the museum had $110 million and then dead man's chest was 200 plus. Yeah. So uh, I mean, considering what they had to work with, with 11 million. And I, even if it doesn't work, I, I appreciate the, the commitment to the vision that he had. And I, I do think it's good. I also really like, there's a scene towards the beginning. Again, I don't think all the emotional stuff works as well as it could, but yeah. there is a scene where uh, they think the girls died because right. the monster took her. And you see the different ways the different family members are expressing right. grief and everything. And I actually, that was, I, I actually I liked that scene is a strong word maybe, but I, I mm-hmm. appreciated that scene a lot. Just, just an interesting portrait of the different ways that, that people, people deal cause. with grief. Yeah. 
thought that was good. Uh, also, and this is an aside, but there is one shot or little scene where a bunch of people are standing on the corner when they think that the virus is running around and one dude starts coughing and everyone starts freaking out. And I'm like, right. oh, there's, there's a relatable moment yeah. in a film right there. <laughs> Especially in, if you're listening to this, you know, 20 years from now in our COVID saturated world in which we live. Yeah. <laughs> it's made me the fear of contagion. Oh goodness. <laughs> oh goodness. Uh, and then yes, the final shot is, is gorgeous. Yeah. I, just, I wrote that down after watching it. Fun. Okay. Uh, after the prolific success of this film, he went, I'm going to say back to dramas. Kind of another murder mystery. Murder. A little bit less, very different tonally, uh, but with the movie mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were your feelings on this movie? Oh, mother. <laughs> oh, mother. I, I, at the end of the day, I really like it. Yeah. I do like it. It is, um, Mother is about a mom mm-hmm. looking for a killer who has framed her son for a murder. Yes. And trying to clear his name. And that barely does, I mean, that's the <laughs> skeleton of the plot of the stuff that happens in this movie is nuts. So many things. And disturbing. It just. Crazy things that happen yeah. that this lady gets herself into. In an effect, I mean. At the, but and part of what I love about it though is that the the simplistic story is sort of brilliant in that the movie is at the heart of it is this very sweet story of a mom trying to help her son absolutely her absolute devotion to him her belief in him and her I will do anything to clear his name yeah. to I will I am if it if no one else will do it and no one else believes. I am going to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And that I think holds the movie together when at a lot of places it sort of goes off the rails, <laughs> but sometimes in ways that I loved how it went off the rails. Cause it's just audacious. Um, it's a whodunit. Yeah. Kind of. It is. But again, that's just the plot. The camera work I think is some of his best in this movie. Man. And the morbid humor again is so like you find yourself where you're like, I don't even know if I should be laughing, but then I know it, it, now I've watched enough of his movies that I go, yeah, he wants me to laugh. I yes, think. yes. Um, but there's lots of twists. It's a very propulsive movie in one mm-hmm. sense, and yet it's also kind of, it's got a slow pace to it. Yeah. Um, which is something he does where they, it both feels slow and fast at the same time. Yeah. Which I don't understand how that works, but a lot of his movies feel that way, where you're like, man, I, there are scenes that feel like, they're too long almost. But then other times when you're like a lot just happened yeah. <laughs> in the space of the last five minutes. <laughs> and so I think uh, the lead performance is fantastic. Oh, I think she's very good. She's um, perfect. I have her name written here somewhere, but uh, I can't find it, but yeah, it's a fantastic lead performance and I've watched it twice now. Cause the first time I did not know kind of what to do with it. And upon my second watch, um, I was much more taken with it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Uh, there's just the opening uh, where she's dancing in that field, mm-hmm. and then you cut to her shopping this wheat while she's watching her son across the street. And very early on in the movie, you see her chasing after the cop car as yeah. he's uh, arrested later on and stuff like that. And just, you're right, this movie gets insane pretty quickly yeah. and then just somehow gets more insane as the movie goes on. You've got these weird twists, like when he's, you know, in the prison and, you know, out of nowhere remembers that his mom tried to kill him at one point. Yeah. 
uh, you get when she's like sneaking around stealing golf clubs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What a weird scene that was. But you're, you're right. I, I think that ultimately, ultimately at its very, very core, it's this mother's love for her son that takes on some very distorted yeah. weight. And it, it, it gets distorted in a lot and of And how that love say. causes her to overlook her own, her son's own flaws. Yes. Which I suppose I'm, I'm, I take it that this is movie is also sort of a metaphor as a lot of his movies are about, I think you could kind of see Korea as being mm. the mother. I see. Or the people of Korea being the mother and the yeah. son being Korea. Some, something along those lines. I don't know for sure. Yeah. But I take it that there, cause all of his movies have this political undertone to them. And so I take it that there's part of the movie is that like we love our country and so we overlook our own flaws. Mm. But I think that's a very prescient theme that could be made of America as well. Absolutely. We love our country, and yet that can cause us to overlook our flaws or our own society, our own political party, our own racial bent, um, whatever it is the case, whatever category you want to put that in. There's a place where our love for something can cause us to overlook the flaws of it yeah. and can make us devoted to it in ways that are both lovely but can also be dangerous and can cause us to miss things that uh that we should and might need to admit absolutely. to absolutely so, yeah i don't know if i could say that more obliquely but i understand what you said i think there's i think there's some of that in the movie which is kind of interesting it's never on the head it's never no. on the nose and i think it works better in that way where you can explore it like that some of his other movies i think tend to be a little bit too it's when he falls into preachy category when it gets a little bit preachy that it, i kind of lose lose a little bit on his movies but mm. when they're more subtle like this and there's you can explore it on both levels i think it's really interesting and i think there is something there i don't exactly know what it is again i think it's part of it is i'm not korean yeah i, I do think that cultural so. barrier definitely yeah, there's i imagine quite a bit we're probably missing with that yeah. but even still I, I think there's a lot to a lot to be gleaned here and really really good so with this, uh, I believe this film was a pretty modest success at the box office. I think it was pretty well received critically as well. Yeah, we he made the shift for a couple of films to some English language first films. In that, uh, I forget what the I believe the characteristic of that is at least fifty percent of the film is in English. Yeah, uh, the first and our leads are are yeah recognizable American actors. Yes. So the most American of actors, maybe. You have Captain, the Captain of America. <laughs> uh, who is trying to take over a train in Snowpiercer. Mm -hmm. uh, based off of, I believe, a French graphic novel from the 2000s. Wow. I have never read it, so I mm -hmm. can't speak to the specific adaptation. Right now, as we speak, there's a, like a TV series based on this property. Right? I think so, yeah, on FX. Which I haven't watched. I have not either. I'm scared to, because I liked this movie, and I don't need something similar to i don't think it would ruin it but yeah i don't believe that most american adaptations of things are good so <laughs> <laughs> but uh this def i think this is one of his most apparent i'm gonna say like analogies or, or oh yeah structures yeah. it's a clear on metaphor for class there's no and it does not try to be subtle no. i don't think it's very apparent from the beginning it's like the poor people are in this car and the closer you get to the front, yeah. the richer the people that live there are. So the plot, if I'm remembering it correctly, is essentially climate change uh, was getting bad. Mm -hmm. And we came up with an idea to cool the earth. We did. And we overdid it. <laughs> Which 
Also fantastic. We plunge the world into a giant ice age <laughs> where the earth becomes uninhabitable. Yep. But at the same time, this guy had invented this train <laughs> that would circumnavigate the globe upon its own power. Uh-huh. It, was in, it was internally self-working. Yeah. So it, and, but it can't stop because if it stops, it'll freeze over. Yeah. And everyone inside will die. And so this giant train, and it is massive, <laughs> this thing, exists as, as far as we know, the only people who are alive are people on this train. The train can't stop. And so there's people that have to keep fixing the train. But then there's classes, right? There's just like the Titanic. There's steerage. And then there's the rich people up front, right? Yeah. And our Chris Evans character is one in the steerage section, the very back of the train. They're kind of become slaves-ish. Yeah to the the group of um and they subsist on nasty bug juice oh jello early in the movie when you see what's in the like protein bricks oh just visceral (laughs) and as you would expect in this type of movie there's a movement and um you know john hurt plays this guy who is gonna lead who's like the the prophet of the people Mm -hmm. who's gonna organize them together and you know, the, the proletariat will rise up against the bourgeoisie. And, yep. and it, then it becomes an action movie of fighting through these various cars, each one which is crazier than the last in different themed rooms, basically. And there's kind of a fun in that, right? Yeah. As we walk away, all the way to the front to try to meet the guy who's in charge of the whole thing. Ed Helms. Which I, I didn't realize was going to be him. But Ed Harris. Oh, Ed Harris. Did I say Helms? Yeah. My bad. Very different. <laughs> that would be a different Very movie. Different film. Although I might be into that. <laughs> Not that. That would be interesting. We'll talk about That's my least favorite part of the movie, maybe, is when we get actually to the front. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I I agree. I think that uh, fighting through the cars was interesting. Again, one, as you're seeing these people try to take power and and gain control from the people that have ruled over them. Well, also, each of the cars is super interesting. Yeah. Like, you get to, like, the sushi bar car and the aquarium car. And then you get to it just I mean every car is a set the piece. school car the yeah I was yeah. when when the school car and the school teacher pulls out the machine gun I was like <laughs> I was not ready for that egg day was amazing <laughs> everybody gets your boiled eggs <laughs> oh goodness um and I actually one I think the action is actually shot pretty well uh-huh. all things considered I mean, again it's not the greatest action film yeah. of all time or anything but it, it's it's shot competently there's some very cool especially one of the opening cars when they're fighting a bunch of axe wielding dudes. Yeah. Uh, it, it goes to some really interesting slow-mo and, and kind of focuses in on some characters, which is what I think action is at its best. The use of light and not having light yes. at different points is really interesting. And I think the movie actually is best when it's an action movie. I would agree with that when as well. It tries. This is one of his movies that I think is better when it's not trying to say something. Yeah. Cause the metaphor is pretty obvious from the very beginning. We know what the point is. And so, I think it's better when it's just an action movie. Yeah. The, as the movie goes, it's a movie that I think gets progressively weaker. Mm. It starts out really strong, and the opening action stuff is good. The more we learn yeah. of the story, the less I care mm. in this one. Interesting. Uh, I just found that the more and more we got to the end, and then there needed to be something really interesting at the end, and yet it turns into the weirdest, like, Willy Wonka, uh, you've made it all the way here, so why don't you run the thing? kind of story that i was just like why in the world would he leave would he want to put him in like i didn't get i didn't believe any of it i didn't care i didn't understand what ed harris's plan was the whole time if he had one uh it just gets very weird and it felt very like 
the Matrix sequels toward the end mm. of the movie, and and I just didn't care. Yeah, <laughs> toward yeah. the end, and most of the best action is in the first half of the movie with choreography and stuff. Yeah, and definitely, so, definitely. Um, so I think it falls apart at the end, but that's not to say I don't like it. I think yeah. it's still good and worth watching. Absolutely, it's just um, doesn't work fully for me. That's fair. That's fair, and I I don't think the ending bothered me as much as it did you. That said, I do agree. I have no idea why he picked Chris Evans' character because clearly this is someone that hates the entire system of the train and I don't think would be on board. He was working with John Hurt apparently the whole time. Yeah, which was weird. I'm like, so why why is this decision you made? And again, you get towards the end car sequence and they're like, no, you need to go out the side door, right? And I'm like, okay, I get it. I understand what we're doing here. It's fine. But even with that, I still think Building up to that, I, I think, makes the movie worth it. Mm-hmm. I, I do still think there's a, there's a lot of good stuff throughout there. And, and again, I, I think the ending is just okay, yeah. especially in comparison to the rest of the film that I think is a lot better. I love Tilda Swinton's character. She's fantastic. So wonderful. I mean, like, awful, yeah. but also fantastic. She's great in everything. Yes. I just, I, she's, she's a wonderful yeah. actress and very, very funny. I, I like that Curtis, Chris Evans' character, is such a flawed protagonist. Mm-hmm. And it, reluctant hero, he's kind of yeah. that type of guy, right? Yeah, and I, I think that's a, especially in an age where I think a lot of the heroes in a lot of movies we have right now are a little bit less that sometimes. It depends on the film mm-hmm. for sure, but it, it's nice to to see something like that. Very different character than Captain America. Yes, what we're so used to him seeing. So it's actually it's kind of refreshing yep. uh, to see him in something else like this. Or he actually does pretty good. I was kind of surprised. He's it, a fairly good actor. He's not like you know Academy Award winning, but I was like. You're showing some real emotion here, and, and again, I haven't really seen him in much outside of the Marvel films, so I didn't. I really do think know. if he if his character could have, I think if they'd have leaned in a little bit more on his character to some of the goofy tone that could have been explored, I, I think it could have been more fun. That's fair. Especially you can see you see he can do that. Like you watch a movie like Knives Out, you can yes. see how he can lean into camp uh-huh. in the best way. Yeah, um, I would have liked to have seen that in this movie because the movie is. Because, I mean, the, the situations are so ridiculous, and yet right. the characters, for the most part, are treating them so seriously mm-hmm. um, that I think it would have been fun to explore more of the campy nature. I mean, they stick a guy's arm out of the <laughs> thing and get it frozen off. and so, I mean, there's so many weird, we, wacky things that happen, and yet the movie's tone, unlike most of his other movies, tends to be very serious the whole way through, right? Yeah. I mean, it treats the situations very seriously. There's not as much of that goofy humor in this movie. That's true. Even though there are funny things that happen. It's much more of an action thriller kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And you're right, particularly with the main characters. Again, aside from yeah. some of the He's very humorous. On the fringe. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. So after the success of Snowpiercer. He never made another movie until Parasite, right? That's correct. There was no other m- movies in between there. He didn't <sighs> make a Netflix deal. Uh <laughs> Yes, he did. All right. So he saw the dollar signs. All right. I don't blame Look, him. I I do not blame him. I think you got to get paid. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think that's important. I think that's a good thing. So he unfortunately made a film called Oakjaw. Now, plenty of people like Oakjaw, and it's okay for people to have good wrong for opinions, right? It's good that's, for them. That's allowed. That's permissible. Uh, before, if, if you love this movie, I'm glad it made you happy. <laughs> You know, if, I really am for, if, for those people. If you were one of those people, part of the four minutes standing ovation at Cannes for this film. <laughs> Is that what it got? Four minutes? Four minutes oh. after. That wasn't just the people leaving? The start of the movie. There, when the Netflix logo appeared, people booed. And then it was projected yeah. in the wrong aspect ratio for the first seven minutes. And people oh. were booing. 
during that as well. What did they have it not? I don't. I don't know if it was like a like if, if it was the widescreen was different shrunk than it should down have been, or maybe it, it had cropped the image a little bit or huh. something like that. It, I didn't say exactly when I looked it up, but not a good way to start your your debut Netflix, especially when you're can. You feel like you, you got to have that under control. This is one of the first big Netflix movies, right? I think so. They poured, I think it was $50 million into this. This is his, the largest budget he's had for a movie. Wow. And what a way to use it. A lot of money spent on CG elephant <laughs> manatee. <laughs> blob thing. Pig things. It looked good. That's probably the best thing I can say about this movie is the CG... He knows how to make a movie. Cinematography is great. Oh, it looks, yeah, fun. I think this is shot on digital, too, it looked like. Probably. Uh, which Parasite might have been, too, but it was, it was a little more distracting for me in this movie. I don't know why. But what, uh, what did you feel about this story of a little girl trying to get her genetically mutated pig back from the big bad corporation? Again, the more on the nose he is, the less effective he is, right? As a filmmaker. Yeah. And this one is so bad corporate government, you know, and, and hey, I, I get you. Corporate giant multinational corporations will exploit anything and anybody for a dollar and to keep their stock price or whatever. So I, I get it. And I'm even sympathetic to the general theme of the movie. Yeah, for sure. And the way we exploit nature and mm-hmm. You know, stuff like this is a, is definitely a theme here, yeah. and I don't I don't have a problem with any of that. I just this movie is so stupid. It's just <laughs> so very stupid. Um, it is, and and I was sort of with I I wanted to be with it because again I love Tilda Swinton, mm-hmm. and I think the little girl is cute. Oh, she's I think adorable. the Okja is adorable. He's so fun, really cute, and I know some people love this movie. I know some people that love this movie. Why? Um, the movie, so let me, let me see what I did like about it. I liked all that stuff. I think there is an energy to the movie that is fun. It's fair. I think, um, it is, I like the boldness. I mean, you you can't say it's a safe movie. Nope. I mean, if he was, he was getting a budget from Netflix, he could have made a very safe movie and Mm -hmm. this is anything but safe. It is kind of a pet movie. Yeah. Right. In a way, a lot of movies about kids and pets are. And I think it does some of that stuff. The I think that's some of the best stuff in the movie is the relationship between the girl and Okja. Absolutely. Okja. I do think he struggles more here with the tonal shifts than he yeah. does in most of his movies. They don't work um, because it starts out kind of. I like the beginning of the movie, the kind Great of opening scene, the the and and the beginning of the movie as it being this kind of family adventure, trying to save their pet, yes. trying and then having the. You know, Tilda Swinton representing this mean corporate culture that's yeah. kind of in the background. But then it becomes, when it be, tries to shift toward the end, toward later in the movie, towards this emotional, more dramatic story that is all about animal cruelty mm-hmm. and and it's about eating meat and yeah, like it's so jarring. I yeah, I, the again as we got toward that stuff, it just did not work for me. I found it to be. I found it to be undermining of the beginning of the movie and we lose track of the main relationships mm-hmm. that we have established. And yeah. I mean, I, the movie kind of almost stops uh-huh. like part of the way through and it's like, Oh, and here's how poorly we treat animals we use for food. Right. right. And it you're like ultra preachy. Why? But, but it feels so disconnected from the emotional core of the film, which you're right yeah. is this relationship between this little girl and her pet Oakjaw, Right. 
And I actually think if this had been almost like a family movie, yeah, where I think if it had pulled back on a lot of the other stuff and not not had that message necessarily, because like we get it from the whole, from the the first half an hour, I know what this movie is about, right? Not even that. The first ten minutes, I know what this movie is about. <laughs> That's true. I mean, Tilda Swinton, right off the get go, you're like, okay, that we, opening montage, we know what she's doing. We get it. I get the point of this movie. Yeah, but I don't think it needed to go, and it didn't need to keep going and reminding us of that fact yeah. the entire time. But don't get me wrong, I love Paul Dano. Yeah, he's fun, but we got it pretty early on. Yeah, and I, I don't think we we needed to spend as much time on that. Yeah, I think that when the movie st- sits as like a family adventure film about trying to save their pet. Yeah. I think the movie really works, and I think it would have worked. When it becomes a message movie, and it, when, it, when it moves into almost horror yeah. kind of stuff toward the end, um, that's all in the second half, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, uh, that, that stuff just doesn't work. The, the tonal shifts there don't work for me. I'm with you. Because, again, it, it ceases being sweet, and it kind of just, I feel like I'm being just instructed. I feel like I'm watching some kind of a lecture yeah. about the cruelty of animals. It's like that, uh, the, those booths at the fair where it's like, we'll pay you a dollar if you come watch this yeah. video about how that, and that's not what I want out of a movie. It's not yeah. why I watch a movie. And again, I, you're right. It's not, it's not about the message. Right. It's about the way that message is shoved down your throat. Yeah. Like four times. Yeah. They did look tasty. <laughs> All right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to disagree. I guess. <laughs> that's definitely gmos that going on uh, in oakja <laughs> you know it you know but it's, it. i think it's my least it's definitely my least favorite of his movies Easily. by a wide mile i think it's the only movie of his that fundamentally i think doesn't work i i, mean, I would say i dislike yeah it's the only one i would say i dislike yeah absolutely so after he didn't make that movie thankfully uh-huh. and he just went to to greater heights he made parasite yeah parasite the story of a low i'm gonna say poor i don't know if that's a proper term but i'm gonna say poor korean family that uses their wits and exploits the naivety of a wealthy korean couple and uses their intelligence to infiltrate the home yes from below and that's the whole movie that's the story well (laughs) it is that but like like his best movies there is so much going on here yeah so much that is subtle for the most part. Yeah. It's very clear. Again, similar themes to actually Snowpiercer, but here you have subtlety because there's a, there's an engaging story with characters we care about, yes. characters we love, actors that are doing really interesting work. But yet it is about class discrimination. It's about the difficulty of rising up, especially in, you know, and maybe this is even worse or this, I know this is a problem in American culture, but apparently it's also the case in Korean culture that those um, in middle and middle upper class and upper class neighborhoods and environments sort of have so many advantages to stay there that it's really difficult for those in the lower middle class and poor groups to be able to make their way in. Yeah. And this family finds a way in. They do. <laughs> they do. <laughs> Literally, right? So they, and in, and in invading the house, it is this, this story of, of class yeah. and, um, and and how it, and it's asking the question, you know, and I, the movie obviously has a uh, an answer that it wants you to give, but it is asking that question: Is it worth disrupting this? What for, at least for those who are the haves, seems like a good balance. Mm-hmm. Like not everybody can be rich, not everybody can have everything, and so we have a good kind of system worked out here. 
they need us and we need them and it all kind of works together. But the question is, you know, are we allowed to question that? And how does one rise up through the ranks without disrupting as you make your way through? Yeah. And I think there's really interesting stuff there. Um, but the reason why the movie works is because all of that doesn't matter because we have characters we love situations that are again kind of crazy and insane the stuff that happens in this movie yeah and yeah i love this movie so it's my second favorite news movie behind memories of murder i don't again i think the ending is a little i'm a little bit meh on the ending i don't dislike the ending mm-hmm. but i think it's weak it's a weak ending what, what do you think what do you think is weak about the ending because I don't quite get what the whole plan is. I mean, there's a little bit left to, is this happening? This is in his mind. This is a dream sort of thing. This is their imagining of what could be mm-hmm. for his kids. But it just seems like a really weird even dream that they're going to buy the house and the whole this whole thing that this is the way instead of just smuggling them out of the city or something like that. But So I think just the ending gets a little messy in its details and you know, how much is reality and how much is it imagination and... If it is imagination, why would you imagine that as the version that you imagine? It's just, I don't know. I just, I just, I kind of, the ending left me a little bit cold. Gotcha. Just, and I didn't, I didn't quite understand or care. But 99% of this movie is fantastic. And again, funny. And I mean, just family and togetherness and their creativity, their ingenuity, their cleverness. It is both family drama, family comedy. Uh, invasion, home invasion thriller, uh, on a heist esque heist almost. movie. Yeah. It is. It can be. It's tense oh. at times, uh, unbearably so. Almost, <laughs> it, is. At, it is awkward and like, like you want to look away, not because you're afraid you're going to see a disturbing image, but because you just it's you're uncomfortable yeah. in the best way that a movie can do. And and again, the characters and actors I think are fantastic. His cinematography is wonderful and beautiful yeah. to look at. I think the script is really interesting and well done. Mm-hmm. So I think this movie really does work. Yeah. Um, if not for that ending, I think this would be my favorite of his movies. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Just and I mean, even you talking about like Stephen. And again, obvious, but still the stare imagery and how he uses that. And he storyboarded this whole film. And I think that's clear when you mm-hmm. watch it because every shot is so deliberate with people moving up and down and just the way that they built, they designed that house. Mm-hmm. I believe it was all built on a soundstage. I don't believe that's an actual house, but just the, the way he was able to structure all of that. And yeah, you, you, you're rooting for this family again, kind of in a similar way you would to criminals in a heist film. Right. Where you're like, these aren't good people, but they're, I don't even want to say the better people. Cause I actually think the way that he portrays the, I believe it's the Kim family is the rich or no, the, the Park Parks. family. Parks Sorry. and the Kims. The yeah. Kims are the, the, the poor family and then the rich family is, is still with a lot of subtlety. They are not right. these They're not villains. mustachioed, twirling villains. Yes, they're not, they're not people that hate poor people. Right. Even though they're taking advantage of them and, I mean, you know, physically over them, right? right? Yeah. In more of a naive way, which does not just, the movie doesn't justify that, but it does... I think have a little bit more nuance. Especially with the last year, you know, talking about inherent bias that people can have and, you know, these things that are, that are difficult. And if you were the park family, what else do you do? You know, you could kind of ask that question and there's not clear. There's not a hundred percent clear answers about, about how class struggles get fixed. Yeah. 
I mean, even something as simple as when she's the, in the supermarket and she comments on how beautiful the rain was, yeah. right? While they had their entire home flooded the night before. Something as simple as that, right. that, you know, she physically couldn't even understand, really. Yeah. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you might be a U.S. senator from Texas who can't really do anything about people freezing, and yet you probably still shouldn't go to Cancun on vacation. Probably not a good idea. Not a good look. Not, not a great Staying at way home to doesn't it. solve the problem. But we probably can be a little bit more compassionate in our, you know, in our optics in a way. And and but that's I think how this movie works so well is because it doesn't give easy answers. It doesn't have clear villains and heroes. Yeah. Even though we do have our protagonists that we care about and are yeah. following. Because um, even the Kim family, they're not really the I'm going to say the quote unquote good guys either. Right. right? I mean, they take advantage of an even poorer family mm -hmm. and end up killing some of them in order to to get what they want. Yeah. Right. And I, I, yeah, I, I just think that all of that blends together so well and you're just captivated by everyone in the film and you're so invested. And, and here the juggling of tones really works. Uh, how you move deftly between humor and seriousness and scary. And yeah, what, what I love, his movies, when they're at their best, and I think this movie and several of his others, when they're at their best, you're on your edge of your seat at every moment, like it's a thriller because you have no idea what's around the next corner. Yeah. And it could be literally anything like a monster could have shown up in this movie, like a genuine monster. And I wouldn't have been really surprised. Nope. And, and there's something wonderful about that in his off kilter sense of genre splicing. Yeah. That works really well. And yet he's also, I think a fantastic classical filmmaker with shot selection, cinematography, this, I mean, much of this movie is inspired by, Hitchcock and Spielberg yeah. and is you know you don't get you, you you have a sense of place you have a sense of where everything is in this house which is really important for the plot of this movie and he does that really well when a lot of filmmakers nowadays rely on you know kind of cheap tricks and quick editing and that sort of thing that everything is thought through here scene transitions I think he does really well uh and in finally we in America caught up to all the great stuff he was doing because of this film. So yeah. Thankful that it was able to, to kind of blow up here and really took the world by storm. It has just done a lot to, to bring Korean cinema over for sure. Wonderful. Uh, well with that, uh, do you have anything in closing just to just a general commentary? I feel like we've, we've pretty much gone through. Yeah, I would say go see them. If you haven't seen them yet, a yeah. lot of them are pretty accessibly found online. Several of them on Netflix. Yeah. And I think Netflix and Hulu have, Pretty much all of them yeah. between the two of them. So go out and, and watch them. I'm sure if you don't have there, you can rent them on iTunes and different things like that. But And get into, uh, there was recently on a Criterion Channel, if you subscribe to that, there was a, a new Korean cinema uh, feature um, where they highlighted, uh, I think, like 17 films from Korean filmmakers, including Mr. Bong Joon-ho and Park Chan-wook and, and some others. So I would encourage you to check that out if that is something you're interested in. I think South Korea has a, they're, they're very unique in their tone. A lot of their movies have this kind of odd tone. Yeah. Really interesting filmmaking, definitely different than American filmmaking, different sensibilities, which is always refreshing to see. And um, so, yeah, I would say just go out and watch them. 100%. Well, with that... Uh, I want to thank you guys so much for tuning in. All four of you that picked up this podcast were like, yes, uh -huh. and somehow stuck it out, st stuck it out for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. 
Um, in closing, do you have anything to shout out, plug otherwise? No, I would say, yeah, uh, Criterion Channel is, is one I would plug just because there's lots of streaming services out there. There's like another one coming on every week. We've gotten Discovery Plus and Paramount Plus now yeah. and HBO has one and <laughs> there's so many, right? And I'm subscribed to probably too many. <laughs> That's fair. But Criterion Channel is a great one for things like this. They, they will do little collections. And so they did that new Korean cinema collection, which I was able to catch up with um, quite a bit of stuff on. But the one I wanted to highlight, maybe I'll have a Criterion pick of the week or whatever. It's just yeah. they, they, they show you stuff that you're just not going to see other places. They have a currently a collection on movies, and I've just started diving into this, a collection of movies directed by Mohamed Salah Haroun, who is a – he lived in France, um, but he is from Chad, huh? the country of Chad. He grew up there during periods of civil war. And he had a lot of movies that have been in Cannes. And so, and I'm not familiar with any of his movies. And they have a collection of uh, five of his movies. Uh, Abuna, Darat, A Screaming Man, uh, Grigri, and A Season in France. Five films that I'm very interested in seeing. All of them under two hours long, which is always wow. helpful for me. Always a win. To, uh, get many of them in. So um, that would be interesting. So I haven't watched them yet, but... It's collections like that of I don't I've never even heard of this director before, where there's lots of good streaming services. They're gonna give you something that you probably haven't <laughs> haven't yeah. ever heard of before. It's awesome. And so there you go. Fantastic. Well, check that out. Um, and really, the only thing I have is just as I mentioned before, uh, I highly recommend the um, DGA interview uh, between Ryan Johnson and Bong Joon Ho. And just I think you were the one that told me about the the DGA. They have a podcast feed, I believe. It's a really good podcast. I'm sure they have a YouTube channel thing, but just listen to the podcast. It's great. It's mostly directors interviewing other directors. Mm-hmm. It's freaking I mean, literally, Ryan Johnson interviewing Bong Joon Ho. Yeah. I mean, is that not well, just amazing? <laughs> so good. So highly recommend that. Uh, a lot of good stuff there. Um, and yeah, next week or two weeks from now. I think it'll be, I, I, we're still deciding, I think, if this is going to be weekly, bi-weekly. Whenever this next episode arises. Yeah, if there's a bunch of snow, maybe it's in four weeks. Yeah, we'll see knows. what happens. <laughs> Delayed this <laughs> podcast recording by a bit. Uh, I think we're looking at Sofia Coppola next. Yeah. We can change that. We didn't really talk. I forgot to talk no. with you about this before the show. But but I know you've been catching up on her movies. I have. I've seen all of hers. I'm, so. I am so excited to talk about her work. I'm yeah. a big fan. You're a little obsessed with Sofia. It's, it's so good. So good. So... Uh, next episode, we're looking through Sofia Coppola's filmography. If you'd like to watch along, you check those out. Uh, and with that, I think that does it yeah. for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for checking it out. And until next time, stay thoughtful.